Heather Tunnell and Jeremy Tunnell. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to the Plowline Podcast. Uh, this is uh, an episode with um, uh, my colleague and friend, Dan Molly. And uh, Dan uh, and I became acquainted a number of years ago when he was working at the Whidbey Institute. And he has since uh, moved to Colorado and begun a consulting company of his own and uh, has a um, a a program that he works with uh, called Wholehearted Masculinity, and we're going to be talking about men, masculinity, and coming from the heart today. How you doing, Dan? Doing good, Jeremy. Great to be with you. Good. Yeah, nice to have you. So, um, you know, like all young men, uh, you know, when we kind of went through our teen years and and uh, we're going into our 20s, I know for myself, um, trying to figure out what what is it, you know, what is a man, you know, that was a that was a question uh, that that was definitely um, a big part of my exploration uh, as a youth. Um, can you relate to that? And what is a little bit of your experience going through that when you were a younger man? Mm, yes, I can relate to that. First of all, um, I. I looked around as a young person and thought, where, where are the healthy male role models? Because so much of what I was seeing was violence and war and destruction and, um, you know, out in the world as a teenager, you know, I was coming of age when September 11th happened, when the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and just looking around and saying, what is masculinity? <laughs> what is it to even be a man in the world? And do I even want that given what I'm seeing? Um, so I spent a lot of my early 20s actually kind of rejecting my masculine energy and saying, I don't want to be part of this. You know, I just want to be a human or whatever. And so I, I tried to lean more into the feminine qualities just a little bit and the masculine energy didn't disappear. It just went sideways and I, I was controlling and I was insecure and I was um, manipulative and just, I wasn't actually in balance and I wasn't being honest with myself. Um, so then I was faced with this task of how do I integrate that energy that needs a home in me, but that I've been afraid of and ashamed of. And that's where my search for healthy male role models really was what brought me ultimately to, to men's work. And then in men's work, I recognized there were parts of my humanity that still didn't feel like they had a home. And ultimately I found a lot of those parts by engaging in diversity, equity, and inclusion work in mixed spaces and community environments where we could actually talk about these larger forces that were at play affecting the way that we understood masculine and feminine energy, the way that we understood what it meant to be a man in the world or a white person in the world. And that filled in some gaps for me that men's work didn't because it was so focused on the symptoms and not the systems. Hmm. That's a bit of my journey. Yeah. Yeah. Who were some of those, uh, um, who were some of those mentors for you and, and um, what were some of the big takeaways that, that you were, that you had gathered? 
So there were a couple people that I met actually at the Whidbey Institute who continue to be really influential in my life, friends, mentors, role models. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about a friend of mine named Jim Anderson, who uh, lives out here in Colorado, actually. And we've been in touch for, gosh, probably eight or nine years now. Um, and what I noticed about him that I absolutely admired and wanted to emulate was just how present he was with every person he interacted with. He was a hundred percent there with them. Like there wasn't, oh, I'm distracted or I have to go do something. Or I have to prove something. Or I have to make you think I'm important. There was none of that. It was a hundred percent with you and, and not an abdication of his own humanity. He was very much in himself, but the being of service from a place of the cup that's overflowing instead of from a place of the lack or the void that needs to be filled. That really spoke to me and it still does to this day. Yeah. Those kind of uh, human beings can be really powerful to be around, you know, that uh, they're, they're, they're so solidly rooted within themselves that, um, that, uh, uh, they can hold this space, not just for their own humanity, which they're, they're, you know, holding space for on a constant basis, but for you to be able to, uh, root down into your own. Exactly. Yeah. It, there's a permission that I felt and that I still feel in his presence. And there are other people in my life now that also have demonstrated this way of being, but it's a permission to let down your guard, to be more fully human including all of your imperfections um and actually to let those imperfections those quote-unquote flaws be the bridge that connects you mm. but that's actually the most important stuff yeah was, that was just completely uh reorienting to me in terms of how i saw the world i i know for myself um that journey of looking for mentors also came out of um, and I, I think this is, um, I don't think this is an untypical um, reality. It came out of this, this, uh, this reality that, that as a young man, um, you know, my parents divorced when I was, when I was five and, and I went to live with my father for the most part. And uh, um, our relationship, you know, um, never healed from that wound. And, uh, and so as, you know, as a, emerging into my, my young manhood, um, I was looking for these mentors because that question of what is it to be a man was not answered. Um, do you do you mind talking about your relationship with your father and how that informed um, that image of manhood for you? Is that a? Mm -hmm. Yeah, happy to. Well, I want to um, I want to start by saying that my dad was almost fifty years old when I was born, hmm. um, and. So in a way, we've almost skipped generations. I remember I caught myself a few years ago saying my grandfather, I mean, my dad, because he could have been, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a, there a way that that felt disconnected, but there's also a way that felt like an enormous gift. Um, he was around. He had retired by the time I went to high school. Mm -hmm. um, he was around in a way that, you know, it's not very common. And my father... Um, passed away last summer. I'm so, sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. So he's 
he's not around now in a way that, you know, maybe he would have been if he were younger. We don't know. Mm. You know, age isn't the only factor, of course. But um, but it's just interesting to notice uh, that sort of unique relationship of just being from very different generations. And yet um, something that I appreciated about him is he has such a big heart. So he, he would always really, um, you know, he was available to talk about things that mattered. Um, and where it got challenging was when there was intensity present or conflict um, because of, he was previously married. Uh, he had a marriage that he felt pretty unsafe and verbally and emotionally. And so um, he would just leave when there was intensity. He would walk out of the room. Mm. And so then I thought to myself, gosh, I got to leave too. Whether I'm physically here or not, there's a part of me that needs to leave when intensity is present and when anger is present and conflict is happening. And uh, so I've done a lot of work around that. It still affects me, but um, you know, I don't see that as, as a, a problem. It's just part of the package of the inheritance that I have from my own father and everybody's got something. Um, but I think more than anything, the legacy that I carry on from him is really that a passion for working with people, being present with people. That's why I felt so drawn to Jim Anderson and to the other mentors in my life who are so present and so interested in other people's stories and their experiences and their lives and, and always looking for how they can be of support, not in a patronizing way or a savior way, but in a human to human way. Hmm. And, and I really love that about my dad. Yeah, that's great. That's really amazing. I, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I think one of the things I tell our kids, uh, you know, is that, um, no, no matter how much you love your children, you know, no matter um, how much you you work hard in order to ensure that that you're giving them what they need, all parents wound, you know, and and it's because they have a wound, and um, you know, and and so um, that was a big realization for me uh, as a young man in counseling and in mentorship. That actually came from a mentor of mine uh, was uh, was to realize that. Um, part of the wound that I was feeling was the wound I had also inherited from my father. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, parents can only give what they've been given. And, uh, um, I, you know, and, and so I've had some good mentors. I've had some really bad mentors. Uh, have you ever had mm-hmm. some bad mentors? A few. Yeah. Have you ever thought about what what was it that didn't work in in uh, in those particular relationships and what did work in the others? Mm, yeah. Um, I have found the most challenging relationships with people I look up to often include a big gap between what they say they value and their actions. Mm. Um, even if it's an occasional misstep, it reveals something that feels like it breaks trust. Um, so that has felt hard in certain circumstances. Um, and then I'd say emotional unavailability. is also a challenge, especially when I, with other men that I look up to, when I feel like they don't have a connection to their own emotional body, then um, 
it's a lot harder for me to feel like I'm welcome. Yeah. Um, even though I, I struggle with that too. You know, I don't feel like I'm great being emotionally connected uh, all the time either. But, but yeah, it's just, I'm always looking for, can I be vulnerable and be safe here? And sometimes the answer comes back as like a pretty clear embodied no. <laughs> yeah. 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 And it is an embodied answer. Oftentimes I've noticed, you know, in, right. in, in those circumstances. Uh, well, I think you touch on something that, that is, um, you know, is the masculine wound of, of our time, right? You know, this, uh, this disconnection of, um, of emotional um, maturity, uh, of mo emotional development, um, uh, as a man. And it's difficult to, I think one of the things that's difficult about that is that, um, it's difficult to know what that's supposed to look like yeah. because, you know, our examples for, um, being emotional are feminine. Mm -hmm. And so what does the, what does it look like to be emotional in the masculine? Yeah. I love that. And, and it's interesting because it brings you back to another memory actually at the Whitby Institute where um, Will Keepin and Cynthia Bricks were giving a workshop on, they do gender reconciliation work um, across the world. And, uh, and there was a point at which Will was sharing some of the, the statistics around violence against women and children and lots of other intense things. And he then got very angry. Mm. He was just loud and yelling and angry, but not from a place of being out of control or out of um, grounded connection to himself or others. Just from a place, it's almost like a, a sacred rage of this is not okay, right? And that really opened something up for me because here I was being a man, an older man, similar to, you know, my father in a way, um, holding anger in a really different way than I thought was possible. And recognizing that there is a need for male anger, hmm. that there is a need for us to actually say, this is not okay. And to take a stand for things. Yes. Um, and to do so from a place of love, from self-connection, from care for those around us, but to do it. And yes. that was a, a big, that was a really important turning point for me. Yeah, I think that touches on uh, on often where um, male anger can come from without the ideas of love and compassion, you know, without the realities of love and compassion um, woven into it. And it can come from a place of um, it can come from a, a place of out of control anger, uh, but it can also come from a place of um, unchecked righteousness mm -hmm. of, um, you know, of um, of uh, an assuredness or an, a certainty of, of one's position, opinion, perspective um, that goes unchecked uh, um, men's men's anger can can. Um, erupt out of re reactionary loops rather than um, inquiry and feedback loops. And, um, and I think that's where love and compassion woven into it um, can, can inspire uh, a much more um, rounded 
feedback loop type of uh, type of emotional reaction. Um, you know, I do feel this way, but why do I feel this way? And is this justified? And am I open to um, feedback from others on this? Right. I think that's really key is being open to feedback and understanding the difference between maybe our intention and our impact with mm. others. And it's interesting to look at uh, how sometimes we as men can rush to this feeling of being threatened by feedback. You're seeing me in a way that's not aligned with how I see myself. Yeah. So screw you, you know, like there's something wrong with you. Um, leave me alone. And so you can get self-protective and feel like it's a threat. But actually, that means that we're, we're really stuck on a fixed notion of our identity rather than a fluid and revolving sense of humanity, which we each occupy. And so by staying stuck on that fixed identity, I am this, I am a man, I am whatever it is, um, that means that we are impermeable to the forces that would help us develop on our path to grow, to learn, to actually become more fully expressed in who we are and to build more thriving relationships all around us. So the opportunity is to say, where am I rigid? Where am I fixed? And how can I release some of that and open myself to trusting more of my own innate significance, my own innate self-worth, that everything that I need, it's not under threat by someone else's seeing of me. It's actually only, um, supported and evolved mm. by their seeing of me yeah i had a i had a major example uh, of that in my life which was eye-opening i had uh, just be uh, started a, a master's program at antioch university in their whole systems design program uh we it's a cohort program there were um almost 30 of us and um uh i think there were three or four men uh and i was one of them and uh we were sitting in a circle and it, so the group dynamics are just forming and in those group dynamics uh one of the things that i had would typically do uh in is um establish some sort of uh well this is who i am through facts especially scientific facts right and so i think we were talking about emotions and um and so uh, and I inserted this um, this uh, this uh, factual information about how um, how the hippocampus um, generates peptides and so on and so forth. So I turned it into a biological function, uh, and uh, I was challenged uh, by one of the women in the in the group, and um, and challenged hard. Uh, and it was a moment where. I had to choose my reaction um, because I was angry. I was angry because I was being challenged in front of the group, um, especially when the tactic that I was employing was to, um, you know, was to present myself as, you know, intelligent, uh, well-spoken, well-read. Uh, and, uh, and so, and I, and, and I ended up walking away from that, um, you know, much more with my tail between my legs and, uh, I was so outraged by it that I went to the director of the program and complained to her and, and, uh, you know, and said, I, you know, like, because it, there was some follow-up emails that, that, that had, that had occurred. And, and so it didn't end just there. Right. And as appropriate or inappropriate as, as the, as the follow, 
the key point that the that the that the director of the program asked me to do was what if you just sat with this what if you just sat with this what if what if i and uh, and she said what i i'm guessing but uh, but my guess is, is that in group settings, you probably spent more time talking than you've spent listening. And, uh, and so what if you spent time during this cohort experience listening? And it changed, it changed not just the experience, but it changed my life. It, it, wow. it made me realize the power um, that was there in holding space rather than taking space. And, um, and, uh, um, and I think that's something that that um, as men, uh, we're not encouraged and we're not taught. Mm-hmm. I love that story. I appreciate you sharing it. And um, I was just mapping what you said, holding space versus taking space against what we said earlier, role model, you know, ones that really life-giving and, and encouraging and ones that were like, ooh, don't feel safe there. Um, and it's it's oftentimes... It's a it's a dance, holding space and taking space, but but more than anything, it's holding space that I mm. have found is sort of deeply sacred masculine energy, um, and we I think we hear about this in terms of the model of the masculine, not not assigning it to man or woman, but the masculine energy being the space holding energy yes. for the feminine to actually be the creative force, and uh, and so it's it's almost strange that we've gotten enculturated in such a way that we think the masculine is filling the space and asserting and taking all this action when in fact space holding is our most sacred duty. Yeah. I, so going back to really great point, going back to that notion of, you know, not necessarily assigning it to, um, to, to, to the, to a male, but, but the masculine, right. And the feminine, even within ourselves, um, and within, you know, gender roles, uh, you know, the, um, you know, um, for better or for worse, that space holding is what men have typically done historically um, uh, in in modern, you know, 60, 70 years of modern society, right? Go to work, um, you know, and and hold the space for the household uh, that um, that is there you know, hold the space of, 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 uh, for the children and, and, and for, and for the wife within ourselves. Um, and obviously that's, that's changed considerably, um, in our lifetime. Um, and, but within ourselves that the masculine, um, that holds that space for that creative feminine energy, I think is found in those, those elements of self-discipline, right? Those elements of, I don't like to get up in the morning and work out, but I do, um, I don't like to, um, you know, um, uh, put myself into these situations or these circumstances in which I'm having to, um, I'm having to be uncomfortable or I'm having to, uh, those are all space holding exercises. Mm-hmm. And, and so when we do those, even within ourselves, they allow this freedom of, of the feminine to emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in in a healthy relationship of the masculine and feminine within us, what you just shared is a great example of how the masculine can show up and then the discipline, the structure, the holding the space for what's important to happen. Um, I think where it can get out of balance and feel stuck is when the feminine in us has been totally squashed 
by mm. patriarchal notions of masculinity where there's no room for those feelings or that tenderness or that empathy or that care uh, even toward ourselves but in fact the what the masculine energy turns into is sort of like a taskmaster or a controlling force that wants to assert itself over the feminine rather than be in balance with it and so then it becomes scary to slow down it becomes scary to be with oneself to be to be in silence to be in the unknown all these these uh, realms that the masculine i think in a healthy relationship with the feminine would feel quite confident in suddenly it feels existentially threatening hmm yes yeah how do you think that manifests uh um I guess first, how do you think that manifests within us, right? So when when we're squashing that that feminine, how do you think that manifests? Well, it's a it's a devaluation of everything we assign as feminine. Hmm. So that's everything from feminized emotions in us to um, feminized elements of our society, um, caring for others, nurturing others. Um, to even women and girls and female identifying people and gender non-binary people, whatever it is that isn't clear and masculine, um, there's a sort of second-class citizenship. Um, and I think one of the ways that this can show up is in, you know, not understanding how to how to create consenting relationship, whether that's mm. in terms of sexuality or really showing up in spaces like you in your classroom how to be in a space where you're truly sharing sharing power and showing up in partnership rather than using coercive power to try to fill a void in yourself that somehow by being better than someone else you think you can fill and so there is a there's a real need here i think to um really look at what has been dehumanized in us what parts of us are hard to love are hard to hold close like i said earlier what parts are we afraid of ashamed of um and bring those back into balance because they're all part of who we are and when any one of those elements is uh cast out then there is going to be a reflection in the way that we treat other people based on that dehumanized part of ourselves yeah i i think the there are also elements within our society um, that are external to ourself that are constantly um uh they're like hatchets to um that that are handed to us in order to kind of slay that that um healthy femininity pornography in particular um being an example of that uh, i know with my own experience with it it uh um uh, there you know i learned i learned that there was a clear um uh line between between the um the engagement with it and and the the proliferation of objectifying thoughts that would occur um just in the way that i tried to you know manage that addiction i i would spend long periods of time not engaging with it and so you know like it, it would be like the cobwebs would clear out of my head you know i could i could uh i could see the world around me without seeing it through that filter but the minute i engaged with it was the minute that that the women around me became um objectified but not just the women around me became objectified their body parts became objectified 
because I suddenly had put this filter in place that was now um, that was now destroying this feminine, uh, you know, the, this this part of me inside of me. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you, um, yeah, stepping into this terrain and making the link with pornography. Um, and I think what's interesting is, in my experience, um, when I was using porn. I, I quit about 10 years ago and there've just been a couple little moments where I've kind of got close to getting back into it. And thank goodness. Yeah, it's a I've, sneaky bastard. Yeah. I've had a robustness that I can draw from because of all these years of, of not using it, but I say using it, not watching it because it is drug-like. Yes. Um, and it hijacks those brain, you know, those reward pathways. And, um, and so what I notice is that, sexuality becomes disembodied with pornography. It, mm. it occupies the space of fantasy and fantasy alone. There's nothing wrong with fantasy, but when fantasy is disembodied and sensuality is eliminated, then all of a sudden we lose the capacity for intimacy. And that is deeply painful because then what happens is all we're trying to do is find somebody to project the fantasy on so we can relive the experience that gave us the reward pathway hit rather than how do we be in relationship with our bodies, with other people's bodies in ways that are really respectful, that are exciting, that are playful, that are adventurous, but ultimately that are deeply connective, that are in relationship, that are actually centering pleasure rather than centering this fantasy of domination, which by the way, I'm also all for subdom play within consenting relationship. Nothing wrong with playing with power and playing with all these different things that's a beautiful arena to do that in but if all we have is this notion that sexuality is about domination and it's about exploitation and it's about doing things to other people's bodies then we are not only creating harm but we are also taking away the pleasure that we think we're going to get through that experience we're actually making it much harder for our own bodies to show up to sexuality um, and that's a loss for everyone it is yeah especially in consensual relationships it you know it um uh it, it can have the appearance of being um of being okay it can have the appearance of being um uh, healthy even uh you know and and so it takes a it's back goes back to the reactionary loops and feedback loops you know like uh, creating those feedback loops within ourselves to be able to create self-reflection self-awareness and self-regulation practices you know having the ability to ask ourselves, you know, like, how am I using this? Where is this coming up for me? How long have I been using this? Um, you know, it's uh, the pain of coming from a, a divorced home where, um, where, um, you know, I mean, there was a lot of confusion there. And, and, and so in my young teen years, um, uh, pornography was not readily available, but, uh, but it wasn't long after until it was. And, and so, um, and so using it became, um, became very much a habitual um, problem for me that I had to deal with. And I think about the, um, and and I think about the youth today, and and the fact that they're growing up with the the availability to uh, this highly corrosive material that um, that um, that could be very easily and likely is warping their sense of self, 
warping their sense of sexuality and warping their sense of of interaction. And I think we see that with the rise of uh, you know of uh, dating apps and and swiping right and swiping left and and um, you know um, uh, you know I, I think that that's prevalent in our our society and in our men and our women. Yeah, it's certainly a very different thing than it used to be. You know, mm. it's very different than like grabbing a couple of magazines or something like this is now highly trained AI algorithms that are funneling your brain through more and more hardcore content to try to numb you out. So you need more and more in order to get the same hit. It's, it's absolutely a drug. But here's the thing. We live in a highly polarized political environment, uh, cultural environment. And so to even say, oh, porn is harmful can be seen as moralistic or even religiously oriented. And it's because a lot of people who are anti-porn are religious, you know? And so I think what's so important here is to not fall into the trap of binary thinking, to not allow ourselves to say either you're for porn or you're against porn. And if you're liberal, you're for porn because you're for people just exploring and being free. It's like, no, we need to be more nuanced than that. You know, I consider myself progressive. um, And I have real serious questions about pornography um, because of my own experience. And so can we have that conversation? Because here's, the, here's the, the key. This is the heart of it, I think. What is it that you are hiding from or that you are hiding by watching porn? Because for me, it was my emotions. For mm-hmm. me, it was pain. For me, it was loneliness. For me, it was insecurity. For me, it was vulnerability. For me, it was so much easier to run off into a dark room by myself to try to meet that need, however effective or ineffective it was, than to be in the vulnerable, messy reality of human relationship. Yes. To risk rejection, to risk not being enough, to risk all the different things, right? And yet that's what it is to be human. And so today you talk about young people, we're not, we're not equipping our young men to engage in meaningful relationship. We're not equipping our young people to understand sexuality as an intimacy-based relational expression. Um, we, we are equipping them to be stuck in these very loops that we've found ourselves in the past and to, to be stuck in a, in a state of brain development that is extremely sensitive and tends to create lasting lifelong impact. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, uh, I think that, you know, and that that's not just pornography in the world we live in. Um, you know, the algorithm uh, is very much creating, um, exam, you know, exemplifying, amplifying the binary and, uh, and, and really um, pushing all of us to, to think, react, um, create uh, paradigms and perspectives that are, that are binary in nature. And um, uh, it's incredible to me how how um, how easy it is for all of us to, you know, myself included, to get caught up in that and how imperative it is to be aware that there is a binary at work and to and to to create feedback loops that allow me to see beyond it. Yeah, absolutely. We're doing really important, challenging work. It's countercultural to embrace complexity, to question overly simplistic binary notions of reality and existence. 
And it's hard work because especially for those of us like you and I who live in white male bodies, who have lots of access and privilege, who have many opportunities, um, we have all the doors open to us, but this one is slammed shut. Why would you question it? You got everything. Why the hell would you question the very hand that feeds you all this privilege? And I think that's why it's such a confusing notion for, for us and for a lot of people around us doing this work, doing work around diversity, equity, and inclusion, around um, healthier masculinities, that sort of thing, because there's so much structural you know, advantage that's already there. And yet, here's what I often think about when posed with this question, like, well, why do men need liberation? Why do men need, like, what do they need to get free from? And I think largely what it is, is that we have been taught to take our personal power and our personal self-worth and significance and outsource it to actually not have direct access to our power, mm. but, but instead to think of our power only as coercive power or as victim power, but in a relationship with others where it's power over. And so it's a zero sum game. The more you have, the less I have, vice versa. And so we're taught to be in constant competition and to always be jockeying for position, uh, to always try to be the one above rather than the one below. And so what that leads to is this emptiness. Yes. I talked about it earlier. It's, it's that feeling of being deeply insecure, um, feeling lost, feeling threatened by the unknown. And that is by design. That is not a character flaw. That is not because you are a failure or you messed up or you're not good enough. That is how the system works. It was designed that way, that we would be disconnected from our own humanity as men so that we would not question being part of and participating in the dehumanization and oppression of others, even without our own conscious awareness at times, right? So yep. if it's by design, then that our internal fragmentation and, and the way that reflects and impacts others, um, if that's the default, then we need a movement. We need a countercultural revolution of men and all people to come together and say, that's enough. I'm not yes. going to participate in that. I am going to do the work to restore and replenish my own humanity, my own sense of worth and power. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, people on the left or you know, when they're doing DEI work, it's all about telling men they need to shut up and sit down and get rid of their power and decenter themselves. And look, there's a lot of truth to elements of that. But what I think is really lost in that equation is that the abdication of our power is actually the greatest abuse of our power. Yes. And it's not about losing your power. It's about understanding your power differently. So it's not holding that power over others. It's holding that power in yourself with others. And that is a huge change from what we were taught. And it takes a lot of practice to really understand that. Well, that is that, is that idea, uh, that masculine idea of, ho of holding space, uh, right? And, um, and you see... You see this power over in in our structure, in our societal structure, in entertainment with sports. Uh, you know, I mean, that's what that's what sports is: is as one team having power over another. 
Um, you you see that um, in our society, in sports, in in um, how men will make jokes of of uh, female sports. Um, you see that in um, in the way our military operates, and uh, and the fact that that uh, a military could be a force for good in the world, but when it's being used in order to um, uh, grab uh, resources across the world and murder millions. And you see that in our our policing um, and and uh, these these very male dominated, masculine dominated um, elements in which they're pushing um, our manhood into uh, a funnel of power over, and um, and you know I do think that you know I do think that that is what makes what you and I do unique. Um, I think it's very easy for people to look at, at at the two of us and 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 assume oh my gosh these guys these guys are these guys are full of it you know like uh they they totally abdicated their their manhood because they want to talk about what it is to you know be uh, an emotional man and they want to dismantle whiteness well the reason why is because we see the binary and we realize i'm and we step around it because the binary is a trap and um and 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 it is only by creating feedback loops and questions and and encouraging others and teaching others to do so that we're all going to be able to to free ourselves from this colonized paradigm and return back to our humanity yes absolutely and that that requires being willing to take a risk and it requires building a support system around us you can't do this work alone you know, because what happens and what I've found in my own experience is I try to go it alone and I hit a dead end quickly and I, yes. I fall back into running away, hiding, disappearing, kind of just numbing out. And so we need people. And we, at the same time, have been trained not to ask for help, to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps, which is all BS, right? Um, <laughs> and so we have a lot of relearning to do and a lot of, le- you know, learning for the first time to do. Um, and it's not um, as risky as it may seem to do that work. You know, I, I have a, a men's group that I run. And just the other night, we were talking about commitments. And then we were asking for help. Ask a man in the space, text you or send you a reminder. How's it going with your commitment? And, uh, and for a lot of guys, it was like, I've never done this before. Like, if you didn't push me to do this, I would not do it. because It doesn't feel comfortable. Like, I'm not yeah. supposed to need other people. I'm supposed to have my shit together. Yeah. And yet the practice of it, what it does is it starts to build that trust that you can lean into a larger support system and that there are people who have your back and that what you say and what you do matter because other people are paying attention and they've got you, right? And, and that that's a feeling that I think a lot of us as men need before we're willing to take that kind of leap to completely question our reality of what masculinity is and our place in the world. We need to know we got someplace we're going to land and right mm-hmm. now there's a huge gap there, you know, in the military, oftentimes there's that feeling of brotherhood, the band of brothers notion, right? And that sense that like you, you have each other's back to the death. Like it's really, that's an important idea. And, and coming back, I've heard people share stories coming back from uh, active duty, missing that feeling and not being yes. able to find it anywhere in our society because it just doesn't exist. And especially not amongst men. And so I think we need to be cultivating spaces where we can be that real and that firm with each other. I got you. Like, let's go. 
you know, we're part of something bigger here and not from a place of victimhood, like you see with the Proud Boys or other radical elements, but from a place of empowered partnership, where we say we are part of something greater than ourselves, but not because we're better than those people or because we need to protect ourselves against this threat uh, or blame those folks. How do we actually find the power that's so all-encompassing, that's so innate, that's so essential that it needs no enemy? Yes, man, that is that's it. And uh, and honestly, that feels like trailblazer work. You know, like that feels like um, that that feels. I, I know there are men who um, you know who have done it ahead of us, and um, and 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 have paved the way. And and I think that. Uh, you know, me, you know, much of the uh, much of the work in trauma and trauma informed therapy and and, uh, uh, you know, that that's been done by um, a couple of men. I'm thinking of uh, um, is his name, Gabor Monte. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, I think I think that that um, speaks uh, very highly. I know that in our in in our circles, this is a name that, that is quite unpopular. And although I may not agree with everything he says, I think that he too has done a significant amount of work. And that's Jordan Peterson, uh, you know. And I think uh, um, his idea of if you want to change your life, make your bed. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean that's a that's you know there are there are men out there who have who who have thought about this, who have who have worked on it. And here you and I sit, um, you know, we're, um, we're very much trying to have these conversations about whiteness, about maleness, about masculinity. Um, and when we get into rooms with other men who look like us, um, you know, or white men, it's a tough conversation because I think it's exactly what you just said. They don't know where they're going to land. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because there's this <clears throat> this sort of paradox of masculine power, where on the one hand we're told we've got everything. You're so powerful. Like, why do you need anything? Like, you got you have everything. Um, and on the other hand, there's a feeling of powerlessness. Oftentimes, a feeling of powerlessness in our own lives, like a lack of ability to live up to the standards that we've been taught we should emulate. Uh, a lack of power in relationship. Oftentimes, there, there's this trope about your wife being the ball and chains and you not being able to do any holding of the emotions because she's, she's, you know, crazy, quote unquote. And so there's, there's all this uh, way that we kind of bifurcate in relationships to actually escape our own wholeness and the need for us to actually become full adults by outsourcing that into our partner. And so we abdicate our power there. And also we haven't been taught to be relationally skillful because in patriarchal masculine conditioning, that's not valued, you know, what's valued mm. is to be dominant, not to be relationally skillful. And so uh, we miss power there. And then we look for power out in the world and we say, gosh, you know, Michael Kimmel has this term aggrieved entitlement, this notion that what we thought we deserved, who we, de who we thought we deserved to be isn't happening. And whether that's, you know, I thought I should have been a king and I'm not, or I should, thought I should have had a well-paying union job and now they're all gone. Whatever the story is, we are not positioned the way that we thought we deserve to be as mm. men by and large. And so we're facing a really different world than our ancestors, than our forefathers did. And that's real. There's real pain there. Um, but the entitlement that comes from that only serves to disconnect us and move us further away from, I think, what it is that we really long for. 
which is belonging and purpose and connection and, and the capacity to support our families. And so um, what I think we need to do is recognize as a, as a society that there are many different kinds of power and that yes, we as, as men and white men hold disproportionate structural and systemic power, but we may hold also less personal power, relational power, community-based power, spiritual power than we need to show up as whole human beings that can actually help to disrupt those structural inequalities and build a more equitable world with everyone. Well said. Yeah. It's one thing to have the ability to navigate uh, navigate systems where you could find yourselves in halls of power or seats of power, uh, which I do, uh, you know, if, if I wanted to. Um, it's another to um, to feel, you know, to have been given the tools and um, and to have had systems in place that would have equipped us with these ideas of community power, um, uh, spiritual power, emotional um, competency. Uh, and that's where we, we have in the past and we continue into the future, not equip our young men uh, with those same tools. Uh, and, and, uh, and so that's, that's really where that conversation culturally and socially needs to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, have you seen any examples of, you know, intergenerational men's work supporting young men to cultivate some of these capacities that are not traditionally valued? Or is this just not happening? I, I think, I think successfully it's not, it, it's not happening, uh, but I do see examples of it that I don't necessarily think would be successful. I've been involved in some, uh, particularly in the church. Um, you know, I think the church attempts to create, uh, to create this. Unfortunately, uh, I think part of the problem with the, with the, with the dynamic of the church is that it reinforces um, certain aspects of power over far more than it does emotional competency and far more than it does, um, uh, you know, com communal power, uh, and, you know, right. It's, it's still a hierarchy and it's not, it's not a circle and, um, and hierarchies are very easily navigable by men who look like me. Circles are not. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> it's interesting to, to look at, um, just well, there are some things happening. I'm thinking of some organizations that are doing good work with young men. There are few and far between, and there is not a larger cultural conversation that I'm aware of where we're actually talking about um, boyhood and young adulthood for young men. Um, there are books and articles being published about how boys and young men are being left behind and they're in crisis and a lot of people agree with that. And, and fact, frankly, a lot of people across political and religious and value spectrums tend to have some agreement around that something's not working. Um, yes. And yet uh, we're still in this no man's land of how do we meet that need? Uh, and I think, I think how I met that need was starting to find people like Jim, starting to find those male role models and being able to just see what it could even look like and feel like to be in the presence of someone occupying a male body in a healthy way, in a way that felt safe. 
um, but also really powerful and really present. And uh, and I think we need more of that. And so, you know, look, I, there are some important things to learn from someone like Jordan Peterson. There are certainly plenty of valid critiques as well. Um, I think we need more people um, in those spaces than just yes. the Jordan Petersons of the world. I agree. We need, we need more people than the sort of toxic figures that often occupy those spaces, um, sort of proselytizing to the next generation of what it is to be a man. Right. And, and yet many of us who do this work from the perspective of a more humble, a more grounded, a more present masculine energy wouldn't be the first to grab that spotlight. And so there's an interesting um, disconnect there where it's like, how do we get this word out there? How do we get our, you know, the energy of what it is to be exploring this work in healthier ways out there? The, the, just the diversity and the vastness of what it can mean to be a man um, mm -hmm. rather than the pigeonholed man box culture that shuts down all the parts that don't conveniently fit into this domination paradigm. And so I feel really excited about like, you know, how do we get this message out there further? And what are the questions and concerns that young men have today that they're actually looking for answers to They're looking for um, feedback around and all they're getting are those tropes of you just need to dominate women and control your life and build wealth and have lots of things and then you'll be happy because it's not happening. It's not working. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the other issue to all of that is, is it's systems embedded within systems. And so, you know, if, if you know, hierarchy is the, is the dominant um, structure of the paradigm. Uh, and so, um, so when the society, you know, and, and it's not just young men, I think who, who are suffering, obviously young women are too. Suicide rates are up amongst younger generations, uh, um, you know, um, uh, diagnosis of anxiety, depression, um, neurodivergence, uh, you know, all these things are up and, um, you know, uh, what's the common denominator? Well, maybe it's the proliferation of screens and everything that we're interacting, right. The invisible relationship that we have with an algorithm on the other end. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, um, I, I talk a lot about in our work, uh, um, re reactionary loops, which are closed loops um, and um, and uh, feedback loops. Well, social media certainly creates silos, but it's not it's not a closed loop. It is a feedback loop that you've got with an algorithm, and that algorithm is very much in relationship with you, and um, and uh, um, it's clearly having an effect on 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 human beings, especially our youth. Absolutely. Yeah. And those algorithms that we talked about with, with pornography, they are highly advanced. They are way, way more advanced than our brains can keep up with because we're talking about primitive part of the brain that actually responds to these sort of stimuli. And so when we are faced with, you know, a pornographic video or whatever it is, like we are completely outmatched by artificial intelligence. Now, artificial intelligence runs most of our economic system. It runs so much. We see chat GPT now, like it's taking over. Um, and yet there's still this like, this latency in our capacity to recognize just how it's changing our lives right now. Yep. How it's actually impacting us in dramatic ways right now. It's impacting not just what we choose to buy, what we choose to believe, who we think we are, how we view ourselves, how we view the world, our political perspectives, 
but even it's actually creating, like you said, it's almost creating a wedge between us and other human relationships. It's yes. taking, it's occupying that space in a way that it, it believes it can do better than we can, than humans can, right? right. Um, because it's built for commercial purposes. It is built to direct us to purchase things and believe certain things about ourselves that leave us feeling the void and the lack and the fear and the loneliness that have us consuming. And so we need to break ourselves out of that machine and say, no, human relationships are primary. I'm going to spend time talking to people and actually being impacted by other people who have different views and perspectives and beliefs and, and allowing that to filter through my own sense of myself rather than having my nervous system be bombarded by all of this intensity from these algorithms that I can't possibly keep up with or discern myself within. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is well said. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think a couple of years ago when, um, all the, the tech guys and, you know, and Elon Musk were saying, you know, AI is extraordinarily dangerous, you know, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a problem. And the trope was, uh, this idea of, of some sort of a terminator, um, reality, but the re but, but what they, I believe they were really talking about is the reality we're literally living in now. Yeah. You know, it's, it's AI is it's most dangerous because it's invisible to us. Mm -hmm. That's right. what makes it the most dangerous. Well, and what else is invisible to us that's dangerous, you know, mm. systems of repression, you know, we have been by design, we have been led to believe that this is just the way it is to be a man, or this is just what it is to be a white person. I'm not white. I'm human. I'm Dan. Right. And so we, we make it invisible uh, because that's, how it's designed for those of us who occupy positions that have access to a lot of privilege, right? And, um, <clears throat> but now, so we throw in this AI piece and once again, it's another system that's deeply and profoundly impacting us, but that is actually invisible by design. And so clearly there is an imperative for us to start noticing and calling out these systems that are impacting us yes. because they are, first of all, historically hugely significant and impactful, thinking back to the legacy of slavery, indigenous genocide, et cetera. But they are also right now killing us and hurting us and dividing us and polarizing us. And yet here we are uh, by and large believing that once again, the, re the reality of the world around us is simply the result of individual decisions and choices right. and personalities. Yeah. <clears throat> we need to cut through that. There, I really believe in people. I believe in the, the essential goodness of people. I think what divides us is what has been designed to divide us. Yes. And that is what we need to look at. And that ultimately is, I think, what will bring us back together. Yes, we, we are collectively interconnected, uh, but uh, we don't talk about it. We don't teach it. We don't, it's not, and, and so consequently that collective inter interconnection is, um, is something again, we don't see. And, uh, and there's these elements, these bolt on elements, AI being one of them that maximize it, that take advantage of it, that do see it, uh, that, that can operate within it. Um, uh, you know, I think, uh, and I think that that you mentioned um, um, indigenous genocide, uh, um, the the Atlantic slave trade, 
um, the creation of race, the uh, you know of the pseudoscience of race, the the legal evolution of of, of that which was whiteness, um, and uh, and these things are all elements of elements of colonization, um, and the paradigm that we live in, in which they become invisible to us, um, I I call the colonized mind. And I don't see them as separate things. I see them as an evolution of the same thing. AI is simply in uh, uh, it, because it's working off of right, like it's in, it's it's informed and be and informing the the matrix of colonization that was established. Uh, you know, well, we can we can we can put a start date. You know, about six hundred years ago, um, uh, but it obviously goes beyond that. But we can put a start date for this current epoch we live within. Um, the, the, you know, that, that AI is engaging with that. So it is an evolution on those things, on those invisible elements. And, and as long as we exist and live within the colonized mind, we will be blind to these things. And that's one of the reasons why Jerry's teaching, uh, Dr. Jerry Balarosa Tunnell, my partner, wife, and, uh, teaches this idea of reaching back to our indigeneity. Because it's those indigenous ways of being that interconnected with the land, with the sea, with the water, with the sky, with each other, with community, uh, that beingness of those things is what's missing in this society of constant doing. Mm, yes. I love that you just painted a picture that connected the dots across all these different invisible systems, invisible to us often systems. Um, and also, you know, the way that when we talked about what healthy masculinity felt like to be in the presence of someone we looked up to, it's about their, their presence, their being interested in you. There's a sense of connection. These are all the qualities that we need to reconnect to our indigeneity, to the parts of us that um, were disrupted in the mm -hmm. face of the colonized mind, as you said. Um, and so, you know, AI, it's interesting. I, I, there are those who believe that technology is amoral that it's what we do with it. But I think when technology is arising from a colonized mind, it mm. will, of course, perpetuate that because, you know, you have a rotten foundation, you're going to have a rotten house. And right. so what is it for us now to say, these are hugely consequential technologies um, and yet largely being designed by and being programmed by and with information of men and white men because they're the ones often building it and predominantly. Um, so we actually have this really intense perpetuation of those same systems moving through into these new technologies. And if we can't reach back, like you said, and really start grappling with our history, mm. then our future is already written. And yes. who wants to be the victim of somebody else's story when we could be the protagonist of our own narrative? That's the case I make to people. Yes. Yeah, and I I think there's answers in that, right? You know, like uh, um, uh, you know, um, does that mean that that we're all going to go back to uh, you know, a hunter gatherer type um, society? No, it, it it doesn't. There are um, indigenous um, communities that are still able to live in that way, but but uh, that's not that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is is a relationship with with all things not an interaction not an exchange not right not a profit motive not a um you know not a dominion or a domination over a relationship with 
and uh, and perhaps some of those lessons of what it means to to be a, a man and hold that 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 be a, a you know learn to hold space can be found in some of those connections. Uh, you know, how long has it been since we, you know, since a, a person may have laid out underneath the stars? How long has it been since they they built a, a campfire? How long has it been since they, you know, what is that connection with nature? Yeah. And, and then the small groups that you're leading. I think that's a huge part of this, right? Like, because we don't interact like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. I love the invitation to reconnect with nature and we are nature. And so I think the most profound reconnection that we can do is with our own selves, our own bodies, our own hearts, our own emotions. You know, the saying goes like transform yourself and you transform the world. And I think that is often lost for those of us who are still programmed in the colonized mind to say, how do I go help people? How do I go solve this? How do I go change the world? No, <laughs> I've, put, I've spent plenty of time trying to do all that um, only to find myself right back here and say, how do I change myself? How do I love myself? How do I accept myself? How do I have a relationship with myself? Yes. And in that way, how do I open myself to relationship with everything else and see that connection? That's it, man. I, that is ultimately it, uh, you know, and uh, so you know, maybe it's through counseling, certainly through self-reflection, through journaling, through breath work, perhaps through some meditation, um, you know, definitely reading. These are all elements that, uh, you know, that that an individual can do in order to in order to develop this internal feedback loop um, to to move towards um, loving oneself, connecting with oneself, shadow work, um, uh, you know, getting physical, you know, physical exercise. Um, I'm really interested and curious about these, uh, these um, cold tanks, you know, that, that everybody's doing. Uh, but that's it, you know, it, it starts by cultivating that feedback loop within, and then we can cultivate that feedback loop around us. Mm. Yes, exactly. And it's, um, it's deceptively simple. It's like, what do you mean? All I have to do is change myself. Like, how is that a big deal? And yet it's the biggest possible impact we could have because we are influencing and impacting ourself and everyone around us all the time. And, you know, we all know the famous figures, the Gandhis, the, um, you know, Kings, etc. but we don't know all the smaller ones, maybe the unnamed ones, the ones that weren't as famous, but people who have an impact in the world, they have an impact through who they're being. It's a quality of being that people pick up on and they say, oh my God, you helped me connect to that in me. And I'm so grateful, right? And so how do we cultivate the quality of being in ourselves that can support other people to connect more fully to their own humanity, their own purpose, their own whatever, knowledge, wisdom, um, love and not by trying to fix or change or solve but simply by being mm. and how do we be impacted by them so that who we are continues to be enriched and hold rather than fragmented as it was originally designed to be so that we can come into a complete or a more complete sense of our own 
humanity and share that from a place of abundance with the world. Yeah, that's it. The practice of being. There's your key. Dan, I uh, I really appreciate uh, um, hanging out and chatting for this past hour plus. Um, and uh, I, you know, this is something that that I um, have been rolling around in my head a long time, and and I had so appreciate um, the fact that we've had a chance to connect over the past couple of weeks, and and that we made this happen. And and in all honesty, I would very much like to make this happen again with you. Great, me too, Jeremy. Yeah, it's such an honor and joy to be with you and and to be exploring this exciting, daunting, adventurous terrain together. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, is there a place where people can uh, reach out and find you? Sure, yeah, you can find me at danmolly.com. That's M-A-H-L-E, danmolly.com, yep. Awesome. Uh, and if you're interested in um, in some of the other things that we've got going, you can check us out at uh, at co3consulting.net. That's C-O, the number three, consulting.net. Uh, and uh, we we have uh, some uh, consulting offerings there. And if you like the work that uh, the Plowline podcast and uh, and our um, our newsletters are doing, then you want to contribute to that, then please, by all means, uh, do so. You can do that at patreon.com backslash Plowline Productions. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Dan, thank you. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you soon.